Support comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about clinical treatment pathways with Dr. Karen Adelson. Dr. Adelson is an associate professor of medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Let's talk a little bit about what exactly is a clinical treatment pathway. So a, a treatment pathway is a standardized way of treating patients who have similar disease presentations um, in a consistent way. Pathways um, are a narrower version of clinical guidelines, which say, hey, you know, we've seen that patients have the best outcomes if you treat them in a certain way. And so a guideline would say you should make sure to do it that way. A pathway is a little bit narrower, and it becomes a way of standardizing care across a larger enterprise. So while there may be four or five effective options that you could give a patient, there are reasons why you might want to prioritize one over another. And pathways do that. They're really a way of um, influencing how we deliver care. So help me to understand this a little bit better. So a patient comes in with a cancer. Say they've got breast cancer and they go to their doctor and their doctor does their history and their physical exam and finds out more about them and looks at their images and checks their pathology. So how exactly does that then face onto mm -hmm. this, what seems to be kind of cookie cutter medicine. Mm -hmm. So there's different kinds of pathways. So pathways could just be institutional preferences where a group of doctors get together and say, we believe this is the best way to treat this disease. Or pathways could actually be clinical decision support where they're embedded in the electronic health record. So a, a physician would go through and enter a patient's stage and other factors. Sometimes they can enter things about the patient's other medical problems, which might influence which treatments you would give a patient. Um, and at the end of that, the pathway will make a suggestion of the treatment that um, is perhaps best for that patient. And so the, the doctor then can either choose to use that recommendation or not. And we always say that while we want to standardize care, if we ever hit a time where 100% of the doctors were using the pathway, we would know that we had a problem because there are always times where you need to look at other factors, other clinical scenarios, patients' personal preferences. Um, but, but overall, pathways are a way of knowing how you're treating very, very different presentations across a larger organization. Yeah, because, it, I mean, it sounds to me, uh, from an outsider perspective, that taken to an extreme, pathways can be bot-like bot medicine, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that the computer is saying, well, put in all of this data, and it's going to spit out what you should do. In which case, why go to medical mm -hmm. school? So I think that that's a really great and really interesting point. So I think there are... 
there are different degrees of how personalized patients should want their medicine to be. So patients want doctors to take into account their values, their preferences, their living situation, their economic situation, and all of that is tremendously important. And to be honest, I don't think the criteria that go into developing today's pathways do a great job of reflecting those personal elements. At the same time, we know that there are proven treatments that are better than others. And the idea of the sort of oncology chef or the doctor who says, I'm going to give you a pinch of this and a pinch of that and a little of this, and for you, it's going to be just perfect. Patients who are treated that way do not do as well. And patients want to know that they are being given the most effective regimen possible. So when when they develop clinical pathways in oncology, especially in medical and hematologic oncology, the very uh, drug-based specialties, there's a hierarchy they go through. And that hierarchy says, okay, if we're looking at several different treatment options, the first thing we're going to do is prioritize the most effective. And if several regimens are equally effective, then we're going to go with the one that's the least toxic, that's going to have the least number of side effects for a patient. And finally, if those things are equal to, then we'll use the less expensive regimen. And in most, path most pathways that are around today, cost only ends up figuring in 5 or 10% of the time because the efficacy and toxicity, there really usually are substantial differences. Where I think pathways are not doing a great job addressing patients' preferences is in a few realms. So there can be different treatment options that require, require a tremendous, um, tremendously different amount of time and effort given by a patient. So we always say in breast cancer, you've heard me talk about this before, there are, um, you can give a drug called paclitaxel you can give it once a week 12 times, which is very popular and is the chosen priority in most pathways, particularly because you don't have to give a shot to boost white blood cells. That's a very expensive option. Or you can give it once every two weeks four times. Well, the difference between those two to an individual patient could be a month longer out of work and an extra eight visits to an infusion center. So a patient really should understand what factors are going into determining what's on a pathway. And a working, very busy patient may prefer to get you know, the less frequent treatment um, that would be over sooner. And so, you know, I think that the doctors in general um, know the clinical trial data that's coming out. They all go to these big meetings and are very much on top of the data. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you would think that they, in their uh, armamentarium of studies that they carry around in their brain, uh, can prioritize those studies and figure out, well, I know that this regimen is equally effective to that regimen, but this one I can give you in a shorter period of time, and so on and so forth, and are already having those conversations and doing that calculus almost organically in their head. 
Why do we need pathways? So I would argue I don't actually think we're doing that great a job. I think doctors develop comfort levels with regimens that they've used that they believe are the most effective and sometimes will put on blinders to other options. Um, you know, there can be, if, if you think about the benefit for an individual patient, that is really dependent on what that patient's risk is to begin with. So we always say, okay, well, this regimen is going to give you a 50% reduction in the rate of developing metastatic disease. And this other regimen, it may give you a 45% reduction in the risk of developing metastatic disease. So there are a lot of doctors out there who will say, well, of course, we're going to give the one that gives a 50% reduction. It's you know, it's 5% better. But if a patient's risk is only 5% to begin with, that difference between those two regimens is almost negligible for an individual patient. And the time and effort and real burden of treatment and potentially long-term toxicity could be quite dramatically different between the two regimens. And so pathways can help to enforce... Um, us sometimes moving beyond sort of our true beliefs and looking at more objective data. The other scenario that I think is critically important is that we are at a time in oncology where new drugs are being approved at lightning speed. And there are um, general oncologists out there who practice hematology and oncology who see everything from iron deficiency anemia to extremely rare sarcomas. And the burden on those doctors to keep up with every latest study is tremendously intense. I, I, I can't tell you how blown away and impressed I am at some of our more general oncologists and how deep their knowledge is about so many diseases. But this helps um, give some basis to know that you know, the way they're practicing is current. So who develops these pathways anyways? I mean, how do they come into being? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there's all sorts of pathways out there. Um, there are pathways that are put out by insurance companies um, that actually generally take some of the same factors into account. Um, but the insurance company is probably coming at it from a whenever we can reduce cost, we will perspective. Um, that aside, in this sort of payer-driven pathways that I've seen, they tend to prioritize the most effective, you know, least toxic regimen the exact same way. And then there are individual institutional pathways where a bunch of doctors who work together come together and say, this is how we're going to practice. These are our priorities. The issue with those is that the information technology maintenance is tremendously hard. And to keep the pathways updated and current is a huge, huge institutional commitment. And then there's one or two companies that are based on physician consensus panels. So groups or committees that come together with doctors represented from academic centers and community practices across the country where they vote on what items should be on the pathway. And that's actually the one that we've gone with at Smilo. Um, and it's a software that's integrated into our electronic health record, but maintained by a larger company who keeps the pathways current and does does a lot of that work for us. And so one would think that one of the motivations to go towards pathway-based care 
is really to have kind of a standardization uh, across providers so that you don't see, you know, lung cancer doctor A at Smilo and get given regimen A, but then, you know, your friend who has the exact same disease at the exact same stage uh, goes and sees lung cancer doctor B and gets regimen mm-hmm. B. But you said that it's up to the doctor to either accept or reject mm-hmm. the pathway. Yep. Um, so how does that really help in standardization if you could just simply ignore what the pathway says? So I think um, at this point, what we've seen a few months into our pathway experience, our doctors are selecting the pathway options 75 to 80 percent of the time. So, And good pathways sometimes allow for individual patient scenarios. And, and the company that we went with, which is called Via Oncology, does have really good um, pathway scenarios that take into account different types of patient comorbidities. So, for example, if you're um, treating lung cancer, and a patient has a history of neuropathy, it's not going to recommend the drug that's going to cause the most neuropathy. So there can be some flexibility within pathways to account for different patient presentations and to still be on pathway. But we have said to our doctors, you know, we'd like to see you use these pathways whenever they're appropriate. But if your clinical judgment tells you that something else is better for this patient, then go all by all means, choose something off the pathway. But now we have data and we can report and we can see whether there's certain people who are always off pathway or whether or not, you know, there's certain people, frankly, who were always on pathway. That could be equally concerning. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute and then come back and learn a lot more about clinical pathways for cancer with my guest, Dr. Karen Adelson. Support comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Karen Adelson. We're talking about clinical pathways for cancer treatment decisions. And right before the break, we were talking about the fact that these clinical treatment pathways are really kind of decision support that is built into the electronic medical record and takes information about the patient's stage, their comorbidities, and uses that along with information that has been gathered from clinical trials and experts to come up with what we think is the best option for patients. Now, Karen, you mentioned that the three kind of tiers that are looked at in terms of these pathways, at least the ones that are being used here, and one would assume it's similar for other pathways as well, are really the 
efficacy or effectiveness, how well the treatment regimen works for a given population, then the toxicity, how many side effects and what are the complications, and third, cost. Because let's face it, cost is becoming more and more of a driver of healthcare these days. But the one piece that's really missing is Where's the patient in all of this? I mean, the physician has a relationship with the patient, knows what their family situation is like, how far away they live, um, whether their working conditions are such that they are going to be able to do this regimen or not. And that's really missing from what some could perceive pathways to be in terms of cookie-cutter medicine. So where are we going in terms of kind of building in patient-centered care? Because we talk about patient-centered care, but then we talk about pathways. So I think that's a great question. And it's actually something that as I started to work on clinical pathways and think about implementing them, it struck me that the patient's voice was entirely missing. And I think that pathways could actually be used as a tool to help patients really understand all of their different treatment options. And so we have funding now to actually look at First, factors that influence patient decision-making, and, and also factors that lead to decision regret, or what do patients wish they had known beforehand before they chose a specific treatment. And so what we're, the idea is that we're actually going to build a clinical pathway um, for different choices in early-stage breast cancer um, as a pilot, because ultimately we'd love to see this roll out to every different cancer type, and the doctor would use it the same way they use our current clinical pathways, where they enter stage and other um, patient factors, and are given several evidence-based options. But then the patient would access the same portal, but this time patient-facing, and would be able to look at very specific and meaningful information. If they take one regimen over another, how much does that actually influence their individual chance at survival? What is the rate of neuropathy for the violinist? So when we talk about toxicity with pathways, we say, well, if toxicity is equal, well, you know, how do you compare grade three neuropathy or numbness and tingling to grade three fatigue? The violinist may feel very differently about neuropathy than the marathon runner would feel about fatigue. And so we'll be able to show patients in visual representations, not just numbers, but that they can understand where they can see the number of people out of 100 who would experience each different toxicity toxicity with different regimens or different treatment choices, and then ultimately make a decision that is in line with their preferences. And we're really talking about this as a treatment pathway to follow a patient throughout their entire cancer journey um, and really give them the roadmap to have more control in the decisions they make. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds exciting about, you know, not having the bot, as I called it earlier, make the decision about treatment, but really have it spit out 
um, using artificial intelligence and, and the capacity of IT these days, these are the potential regimens. This is the survival difference. These are the toxicities. And allow it to be a platform for physician and patients to communicate and think about the regimen that's best for an individual patient. Exactly. So with this project, which we're calling My Pathway, we are trying to turn a clinical pathway into a shared decision-making tool. Yeah. So that that sounds really quite awesome. Are there currently any guidelines out there in terms of what should go into a pathway, how pathways should be developed? Is this part of that, or is this going to now change the paradigm on how we think about clinical pathways? So in 2016, because there was a proliferation of different pathway products on the market, um, ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, came up with 15 criteria that would be would define high-quality pathways. And in those criteria are things like, is it evidence-based? Is it transparent? Is it consensus-built? And one of the factors is, is it patient-centered, and does it take into account patient preferences? And I think that that highlights the importance and the need for what we're, de- what we're developing here at Yale. Yeah. Now, the one thing that we haven't really talked about, when we think about pathways as you've defined them, it really is built on evidence that is already out there, right? They're evidence-based. So these are regimens that are tried and tested and proven true in clinical trials, which begs the question of, well, how do you get onto a clinical trial? So often on this show, we have talked about clinical trials and their importance and how patients who participate on clinical trials in general tend to do better than patients who are not. And yet, where do clinical trials fit into a pathway? So clinical trial enrollment was a very high priority in our decision to do this huge clinical pathway implementation. So um, as you know, we have doctors practicing all over the state of Connecticut. Some of them are practicing very uh, multiple in, I'm sorry, some of them are taking care of multiple diseases. And it's very hard to keep track of what trials are open for what disease and have which eligibility criteria. And so what we've done is we've taken the same logic that maps a patient to a specific regimen based on their disease criteria to actually map directly to the clinical trial for that disease state. And so on the clinical pathways that we have and that we're using here at Yale, the number one choice is always a clinical trial if it's available. And so after the doctor navigates through the pathway and sees that, oh, this patient may be eligible for a trial, and they select that, a message goes to the coordinator to come and evaluate the patient and screen them for the study. And so even in the first month or two that we had pathways, we had 60 referrals for clinical trials. So are the specific clinical trials then built into the pathway? They are. That is the customization element that we're doing at Yale, yes. Um, Because you had mentioned that these pathways are from a commercial vendor. So how would the commercial vendor know what clinical trials are available? So, So... This was not an easy IT build. (laughs) So we basically had to integrate our clinical trial software 
with the clinical pathway software. And as the clinical trials are updated and maintained and different um, cohorts open or close, it is um, that information is transmitted into the um, clinical pathway software to keep it updated. And so it sounds like this is all moving very much ahead in terms of drug-based therapy uh, in cancer patients. But what about, you know, when we think about best practices and evidence-based care, that really is something that we think about across the continuum from prevention, what are the best modes of prevention, all the way to survivorship. What should we be doing in the survivorship period um, across many modalities, right? Not just medical oncology, but radiation oncology and surgery and so on. Um, what role does Pathways have in all of those other areas? So I think we're still in the infancy of Pathways. Um, and I think if you think about what the future should look like, we should have robust, multidisciplinary Pathways that take into account what type of surgery a patient's having. And if it's a certain type of surgery, there may or may not be radiation indicated. And then which type of radiation you give, do you give a shorter course or a longer course? All of that could eventually be built into a united disease state pathway. Currently, the pathway programs that are diving into realms of radiation or surgery, even survivorship, um, are doing it sort of within that individual discipline. Um, And I think that there will be a lot of exciting work to come. Mm -hmm. When we think about pathways, and as you've described it, kind of being consensus-driven, evidence-based, really helping clinicians to understand what would be the best thing for their patient, especially now building in the patient perspective. Do you see this as overturning or supplanting what have traditionally been the way that physicians kind of get that information, which has been through our tumor boards, right? Um, Physicians sit down in a group every week and they talk about their patients and everybody has different ideas and talks about, well, did you think about this? And there was this recent trial and, you know, they're having this kind of surgery and maybe that influences the kind of radiation and so on and so forth. In pathways, because you now have all of this stored in IT, do you think that might might take over the role of a tumor board? I don't think so. So so if you think about the cases that are generally presented and bring up intense discussion about a tumor board, they're the tougher cases, the grayer cases, the harder cases. And those are also most likely the ones where the doctor may go off pathway. Um, And there is always going to be a need to share cases with your colleagues, to get input from people in different disciplines, and to bring that into certain cases. But there are a lot of cases that are very standard and never even really hit our tumor boards, and I think it's important to standardize care among those. And so the other question, of course, is as you think about cost, and you mentioned that insurance companies are also building in um, these pathways into uh, their regimens, how is that going to affect patients? Are patients going to 
have their regimen covered if it's only based on the insurance company's pathway? How are insurance companies incentivizing doctors, or are they incentivizing doctors based on pathways? So um, Anthem has a pathway program, which I have to be honest, overlaps probably 85 or 90 percent in terms of preferred regimens with the non-payer generated pathway program that, that we've gone with at Yale. And what Anthem does is they say if you treat a patient on pathway, which could be a very expensive brand name pathway if efficacy and toxicity take priority, which they always do, um, they're going to pay an extra fee for every month to improve care coordination. And partly what they're trying to do through that is to shift some of the dependency that cancer providers have on marking up the cost of the drug and saying, we're going to pay for better care coordination and other services if you participate in these pathways, which might ultimately lower the cost of drug. I think we had a very strong feeling at Smilo and at Yale that we did not want to find ourselves in a position in five years where every different payer was going to come to us and say, you have to treat this patient that way because that's on our pathway. And the other payer might say, nope, treat the same patient differently because that's on our pathway. And so we felt that by going with pathways that were generated by expert physicians and consensus panels, we would be able to say, no, we already have our own pathways and this is how we do it um, and ultimately exert more control. Dr. Karen Adelson is an Associate Professor of Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.